What's up, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the Dr. Pete Goldman Show. Super excited to have my buddy Jeff Rothman on, and uh, thank you, Tommy, for letting us use your beautiful studio. With that said, I told Tommy he's going to love this interview. Let's see if I'm right, um, but I'm confident I will be. So, Jeff, I want to ask you a lot of questions about um, the world, history, politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But just as a foundation, before we get into some of those subjects. I know you have a lot of interest in different theories of the nature of reality. So if we could put the first tab up, um, there's a guy, Bernardo Kastrup, if I'm pronouncing it right. That's right. And uh, I know you, uh, you're, I don't, I don't know if the word is fan, but you, uh, you're familiar with his work and you've, I don't, I don't want to say have been influenced by it, but you've uh, developed some of your own ideas based on it. So tell us a little bit about him, what he says, how you look at it, just to set the stage on reality, and then we'll go into some of the details. Well, I'll tell you, I, I actually, you're right. I am a fan, um, and I already believed a lot of what he's saying before he said it. And that's the great thing. When you find an expert on a subject that confirms what your intuition tells you, that's very powerful. And so Kastrup is basically saying that our current scientific community while not wrong in their facts, acts like a religion. And they look at all this stuff like this is the ultimate reality and anything mystical and anything religious or spiritual is fantasy. And he basically upends that argument, not with spiritualism, but with science and logic. And what are some of the um, conclusions or contentions he has about how science does that? Or what has he concluded? So his first contention is that the idea that physical things are the basis of reality, which is what our current popular scientific materialism, the basis of our scientific community believes, is unsubstantiated. That if you look at quantum physics, and a lot of people throw out quantum physics just to say, oh, quantum physics. No, he says, if you look at quantum physics, you know, and he's a PhD in computer science and a PhD in philosophy, he has debates with quantum physicists all the time. It's not just a random spiritualist saying this. If you look at quantum physics, when you get down to the smallest particles, they're not even particles. They only exist if you're viewing them. So how much time is- Just pause for a second, I wanna just ask you, does that imply or mean that if I'm, if this pen, like for example, if I'm looking at Tommy, then he exists, but if I, I'm not looking at him, he doesn't exist for that moment? It actually does imply that, it actually does. Tommy, did you feel like you went in and out of existence when I- <laughs> The basis of what he's saying is that you can't take a lot of zeros and add up to a number. So if every single individual subatomic particle does not exist, then the material basis of this world does not exist. So what is, for example, what is what am I seeing and what is creating me seeing it? So there's an interaction between you and whatever you're seeing. And this is also part of quantum physics. The observer and the observed are one thing. Now, if you listen to that, you notice that's familiar to anybody who's ever studied Buddhism. So there's this thing in quantum physics that tracks with Buddhism because those, that ancient wisdom has some truth. Actually, it's interesting because even beyond Buddhism, many metaphysical teachings mm -hmm. for the last several thousand years have said these same things. And it seems like quantum physics is noticing it or catching up with it or catching up that's you know you say it right there's not a competition between science and intuition i'm not even gonna call it religion people aren't even sure if they want to identify buddhism as a religion but 
all religions come from intuition. We feel, whatever religion you were raised with, you feel it's true. Not just because your parents said so. You feel it on a gut level if you are religious. It's intuition. And so with quantum physics, science has finally caught up with intuition. What about this guy, uh, Donald Hoffman? You wouldn't mind putting that up, Tommy. Oh, there it is. Yeah, so Hoffman, it's funny. I don't actually recommend this book so much. The book is not, it's, to me, the book is a hard read, even though it's a very intelligent book. But I, if, if you ever have a chance to listen to Donald Hoffman on a uh, podcast or something like that, he's just so brilliant. And Castro bases some of his work on what Hoffman says. And Hoffman says, everything we see around us is not the truth. It is what we need to see to survive. That just logic would dictate that you're not going to be distracted by every single thing in reality. You're going to see what you need to see to survive. And Hoffman goes really far down that path and uses quantum physics again as a basis to see. And both of them are almost saying the world is an avatar, a set of avatars, not the deepest reality, which again tracks with Buddhism and other ancient philosophies. Is there any, um, according to these guys or according to what you've determined or are thinking about, is there any objective reality in the third dimension in the physical world we see with our senses? I, I would say no. And I love that you said in the third dimension. So what I'm not doing, and I don't think these guys are doing, <clears throat> I'm not denying we're having an experience here. I'm not denying if I trip and hit my head on this table, I'm going to bleed. And if I jump out this window, I'm going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life. This experience we're having speaks to itself. You know it's a legitimate experience. The point here of what these guys are saying and what I'm saying is it's not the deeper level of existence. Again, tracks with religion. Cool. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a look at the third one, if that's okay, Tommy, the uh, Robert Lanza. What's, uh, what's going on with this guy? So I, I just enjoy this guy so much. He's So he is a medical doctor, and he wrote this book with, so it's the meaning he has the least credibility of the three, and he wrote this book, uh, Biocentrism, and he wrote th three different, one, two, and three. They have different names, but you know the same, same point, um, with a physicist. His work, to me, is the most colorful and creative explanation for what the other two are saying. So if somebody's just interested in what I'm saying, I would just pick up the book Biocentrism or Beyond Biocentrism or the third Biocentrism book. They're all just wonderful, beautiful books. Um, and they're like, I think they're a little less heady. They're a little more down to our level. I read this first and loved it. Okay. So that was some pretty heavy stuff as a mm -hmm. foundation, but it's good. It's good to have heavy stuff because we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things and it's nice to have a foundation of that. So on that note, um, what was going, what was going on in the late forties in India? Why is it significant? And why did you want to chat about it today? You know, so to me, it's an interesting point um, because this is an example of a catastrophe that happened on global proportions um, that has had some resolution. So in the end of the 40s, um, the end of World War II, Britain loses their empire and India has a civil war and part of India becomes what we call India today and part of it becomes Pakistan. I'm simplifying. There's more to it than that, but largely that. There was a war and there was an exchange of, I think, 20 million refugees back and forth. Over Kashmir? No, Kashmir is the remaining part that they're still unsettled with. Got it. So there were just, India was filled with Muslims. They still are, but they were filled with more Muslims. And Pakistan, which was part of India, had many Hindus. And what happened was it got divided into two countries during a war. They didn't agree. They didn't like each other. 20 million people 
lost their land, their homes, their assets. And what happened in the end of that was each side settled its own ethnic community and went on with their lives. And people, I'm sure, are still sad they don't have their home back in Pakistan that are Hindu. And are still sad that they can't see their Hindu neighbor back in India if they're in Pakistan. Um, but the conflict's over because both the sides decided to take care of their own people, and they're not nursing their grievances about that. Is this a well-documented event in history that people there know, people, historians all over the world know, Europe, U.S.? It's not. I've never heard anybody debate okay, the subject. Okay, good, good. I just wanted to know. Yeah. So how can we um, segue from that or, in, or, or go from that into some of the bigger points we want to talk about? Um, what's the significance of that besides the facts that you laid out? So, so an interesting thing is we, we all have something on the tip of our tongue in the news. It's, it's just very popular in the news cycle. And I'll, I'm going to relate it to what I said about, you know, the nature of existence. Everybody's got their experience. So there's some real experiences here happening. I don't want to diminish any of it, but we all have it on the tip of our tongue. It's very important to talk about the Palestinians. Now, who are the Palestinians? These are the Arab refugees from Israel. And so, again, the same period of time, there was a civil war in a country, you know, in India, it was all called India. Now it's India and Pakistan. In Palestine, it was all called Palestine. Now it's called Israel and Palestine. So totally parallel. They had a much smaller exchange of population. So it's 20 million in, in India. In Palestine, there was an exchange of populations between the Jews and the Arabs. And it was about, I think, 800,000 each in each direction, losing their property, losing their home, not being able to go back. So just pausing there for a sec, just to bring everyone up to speed, the Palestinians who lost their property and lost their home, how did that all go down? Was it talking 1948? 1948, there was a war, a civil war in Palestine. And, you know, people like to say, oh, there was a Palestine back then. There sure was. There was a territorial place called Palestine. Um, there weren't, the only Palestinians actually were the Jews. The Jews said, we are Palestinians, and the Arabs said, no. So in 1946, if a Jewish person was living in that part of the world, they'd call themselves a Palestinian. They were a Palestinian Jew. There was no term such as Israeli. The Arabs said, I'm not a Palestinian Arab. Not on a map, a 1946 map, was, did it say Israel? A 46 map said Palestine. Palestine. And the Jews identified as Palestinians, and the Arabs identified as Arabs or as Syrians um, many of them identified with their own village, their own area. Very few of them identified as Palestinians. How, how are the um, the current or the descendants of the current Palestinians getting along with the descend with the descendants of the current Jews in that area back then, 1946? I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question. In other, words, in other words, like for example, if there's someone who's now a Palestinian and there's someone who's now a Jew in the Middle East, they both had like descendants who were living together in an area called. Palestine, right? Were they having a contentious relationship? Or they that was the relationship has largely been contentious. Um, I think the to me the interesting point, you know, that's largely contentious as communities, individuals. Some of them have wonderful relationships. You know, I lived in that part of the world, and I had some wonderful relationships across all ethnic boundaries. To some degree, it was easier to have relationships with the people who self-identified as Palestinian, um, just because. I didn't speak the language and I was in a society, I mean, I did, but I didn't speak the, the Hebrew language well. And so I was in a society where I was not inside the primary culture and the Arabs were not. So I related to them a little better probably than I did to the Jews. Let me ask you this. So considering the history, going back to India and Pakistan, considering mm -hmm. the history you started to bring up in Israel, what are some 
things you think about that or the way the world views it or what are your thoughts on that? Well, so we're obsessed with Palestine and the Palestinians and it's not wrong to feel bad for people who lost their homes. But again, it was 800,000 people exchanged refugees on both sides. You know, about 800,000 Jews were expelled during that period from all over the Arab world and about 800,000 Palestinian Arabs, they didn't call themselves Palestinians yet, Palestinian Arabs left, some of them were expelled, left what is now Israel. There was an exchange of populations. All of those Jews from the Arab world, the Muslim world and the Arab world, were resettled into Israel. None of them got their assets. They lost like $100 billion worth of assets. They didn't get anything back. Israel settled them, took them in, just like India and Pakistan settled their Hindus and Muslims. Right now, if you're a refugee any place in the world besides Palestine, your first generation from a war. Your children are not refugees, your grandchildren are not refugees. The Palestinians are the only group of people where every generation we calculate in their children, their grandchildren, their great children. Eventually there'll be 50 million Palestinian refugees. What is, what no is, other group. What is the uh, world's, in your opinion, what is the world's fascination with the Middle East and maybe, uh, you know, I don't know how many people are checking in on India and uh, Pakistan. So what is the foundation, excuse me, what is the fascination with your average citizen of this world with Israel, Palestine, that conflict, being very emotional about it, etc.? So you asked two really different questions. Um, I'm going to answer your first one first, if you don't mind. Um, the Middle East is fascinating because we get oil from there. <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating. We get oil and we want to know what's going on there. We don't want conflict there. We want them to chill out. We want our oil for cheap because everything we got here depends upon a world economy that, that works. So just pausing for a sec before you continue to answer the first question and get to the second. Do you think that if oil was not in the Middle Eastern equation, most of what we're talking about now would not be as significant? I think it would be less significant. Okay. I think oil is definitely a part of it. And, and I, you know, I don't like to jump too many steps and say, or like, once you jump steps, then you're like designing your own theory. I don't really have a theory on it. You know, theories to me get muddled. I like to just stick to the facts that I understand. Okay. The fact is we use a lot of oil to make the society run, to do this podcast, to drive that car, to live in, to go to that hotel across the street, you know, like everything, everything we need cheap oil. That's a fact. So that part of the world, of course, is more interesting than like Africa. If you look now on this map, there's a little country, Eritrea. My 14-year-old just pointed this out to me. He was like, Dad, hey, where do you think the most people got killed in war in this past year was? I was it's like, by, ah. It's by Ethiopia, right? Yep. It used to be part of Ethiopia. It's on, it's on the coastline of Ethiopia. They seceded from Ethiopia. And so my son asks me, he's like, it's, I knew it's a trick question. He's very smart, but I know his, I know his game. So he's like, he's like, hey, Dad, what, what war in the world today do you think the most people got killed in? And I said... I said Democratic Republic of Congo because they're like the winner every year for the past 30 well, years. What would no you have thought, Tommy, if like a, a, a war that would have killed a lot of people? I mean, well, I don't know what I would have guessed, but. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm learning. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, everybody would guess Ukraine right now because it's in the news. We care. We should care. It matters. But the proportion of numbers only matter again because we relate to Russia and to Europe. There's an ethnocentrism to that. Um, so I knew it wasn't Ukraine. I figured Democratic Republic of Congo because they always get the shaft. Nobody cares. Part of it probably is racism against black people. A lot of it is it's just uncomfortable for journalists to physically go there. The hotels suck. You'll die. Like, people just don't go there. One, one, one of the reasons it's not good to go, you'll die. You know, hotel, yeah, you'll die. Hotels suck, comma, you'll die. You know, yeah. oh, most journalists are not, like, running to the Congo. If you want to talk about— a good reason not to go. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I haven't been there yet. By the way, I've been to lots of places in the world, have not been to the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it has nothing to do with, like, bias towards I ethnicities. I didn't, think, I didn't think Tommy was going to plan a trip to the Congo, and now he's definitely not going to yeah, Scratch it. So, yeah, you don't go there. Now, but if you want to, like, say, talk about Israel, I mean, this is a great example. It's very comfortable in Israel. There are great hotels. There's lots of other journalists to hang around with. The food is good. The water is good. There's a whole culture there of journalism and communities. The people there are very familiar with journalists, so everybody with any opinion is always doing a performance for you it, journalism in israel is like performance art on, on all sides i would say the arab palestinian side does it more but on all sides so it's very comfortable to go to israel and hang out that's not even related to oil and it's not related to the fact that it's jews i think the jewish issue could come up but just it's just convenient to go and hang out in israel so the answer though the real answer is eritrea it's not congo it's certainly not israel israel's not even israel palestine don't even make the list and it's not ukraine eritrea and he gave me some, I don't even know the so number. There was this horrible war, like, you know, or, or horrible uh, killings in, I think it's Eritrea. Maybe I was pronouncing it wrong. but Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Yeah, I think it's Eritrea, but I could be mistaken. Eritrea or uh, mm -hmm. Congo. Mm -hmm. Why do you think your average person outside of the oil, I don't hear anyone talking about Congo and Eritrea. They're talking about Israel and Palestine. This, what, the, what's well, the fascination? Okay, so the fascination is another subject. Um, I'll say this. The reason we, again, I'm going to go back to my other thing. We don't talk about Eritrea, Eritrea or Democratic Republic of Congo because you die if you go there. So who's going who's gonna to go do that? But what I find interesting is, you know, if you look at the UN, at who the UN condemns, all the countries in the world, if you look at that, um, you would see that there's how a lot that, of, How does that happen, by the way? How does the UN, like, you know, the people at the UN, they meet. They have a human the, rights council. So the human rights council will say, they'll look at the globe, which we have up there, mm -hmm. and they'll say, who is committing human rights violations? Mm -hmm. We are going to officially condemn them. That's exactly right. The UN Human Rights Council. Now, the interesting thing right off is members of the Human Rights Council include like Cuba and North Korea. <laughs> I think that Iran is on the Women's Committee, which is really a tasty, tasty irony because they're having a civil war of women rising up against their government. I think they're on the Women's Rights Committee. And so it's like it's like if Michael Vick was running like the ASPCA. Uh, it's exactly like that. No, more like PETA. But anyway, what's what's happening is they get together and they're supposed to condemn countries. So if you like, look, if you take the condemnations of North Korea, I mean, it's kind of a gulag state, like it's kind of like a country run by a cult. And then you take Russia and they're in this nasty kind of genocidal war against Ukraine. And then you've got Congo and you've got Cuba. and You've got a lot of bad countries. People on the left will tell you, you know, the U.S. has a huge military footprint all over the world. You could probably condemn the U.S. a bit, too, even though I wouldn't. There's a lot of people that would. And, you know. There's Germany's a huge just pause there for a sec. That's a good point. So when you mentioned some people, some some, mm -hmm. people, some people on the left would would throw the U.S. on that list. You said you could see their point, but you wouldn't. <clears throat> would your average person on the right do that or no? Um, probably. You know, it's interesting. The average person on the right, no. The farther right might, in fact, do that because the right and the left agree they want the U.S. to not be too involved in the world. That the U.S. is a malignant force. Whatever the case, what I think we all can agree on is the U.S. is a very strong force doing a lot of things sending a lot of military all over the world the point is there's a lot of countries with billions of people in them doing a lot of things and somehow there's one country that gets condemned more times than all of them put together wow interesting so one country more than russia more than japan more than us china north korea libya add them all up together and there's one country that gets condemned I think like 10 times more than all the rest of them put together. I can only figure out, this is a very small country, it's got 8 million people, I can only figure out one thing that sets that country apart from all those other countries. The country is ruled by a coalition 
of democratically elected Jews. So I find that interesting. And it's not me crying anti-Semitism. People love to say, oh, you're crying. I'm not crying anything. I'm just, it's a fact. You look at the UN Human Rights Commission, you look at them, who they've condemned, they condemn the Jewish country. Tommy, can we put up seven? I know we're skipping. So it's just an interesting point to me. It's an interesting point. I'm not crying about it. I'm not trying to make it all when, about when it. Let's, let's, let's just say someone in the U, UN Human Rights Council, someone said the last three minutes to them. They'd be like, no, what are you talking about? We, Israel's just that much worse than Libya. And, you know. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, so is the country, so I think what you've got to ask yourself is, is the country of 8 million people that much more pernicious, that much more evil, that much more malignant than all of the world if we flip that up a little higher, we'll see. A little higher, please. Oh, well, anyway, there's 95 condemnations on this one. Yeah, no, you can't do it. Uh, it my bad. It, 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 you can't even see all the other condemnations of all the other countries together aren't even making it onto this picture. We can't even see them. So the question is, is a country of 8 million? There we go. Now we see, that's all the other countries in the world put together. Look at that chart, Tommy. Look at that freaking chart. So Syria had this massive civil war where 500, 500 million people, am I right? No, sorry. 500,000 people died in Syria in the last decade. Man, Turkey's got it pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Zero. Cuba, zero. Egypt, Egypt. zero. Saudi Arabia, Cuba. zero. Russia, zero. China. These countries, China, gee, no human rights going on. There's, there's like 2 billion people in China. Are they doing some human rights abuses? But somehow, this one country in the red is worse than all of them put together. I mean, anybody who would say that this is appropriate, by definition, hates the people of Israel. Why would you hate the people of Israel? What's special about them? That's all I got to say. That's a wild chart. It's, it's wild. Is that a wild chart? All of the world put together. Israel's the worst. Syria's second worst. Myanmar or Burma, third. About Algeria? I mean, yeah. Algeria is over there. That's yeah. USA got condemned once, Russia zero, China zero. USA got one condemnation. Cool. So the UN's a joke, basically, is what I'm saying. The UN's a joke. You heard it here. I don't disagree. Um, let's let's go to slide five, if you don't mind, Tommy. The um, the ex the expulsion from Germany in the 1940s, Jeff, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, yeah, this is it. Perfect. So this is just another case of how we perseverate on the Palestinians, and again. Um, I'm not saying, yeah, that's the map right that's there. It, that's it. That's it. Yeah. I'm not saying that, listen, the individual, again, it goes back to the subjective experience. The individual people that suffered, lost their houses and their homes in this conflict, their experiences are legit. I, I've met these people personally. I know their I know individuals who've been in that circumstances. I've been to the camps that people have lived at. I've been to people's you, private did you, homes. Did you explain this? What's going on here? So anyway, so this is just an example of a different war. And again, in the late, this is the end of World War II. So we're talking, this is, this is 1945. Yeah. Okay. So Germany loses a war that they started. And then 3 million people, Germans. Another great quote. Germany loses a war that they started. Yeah. yeah. It happens sometimes. Countries lose wars they start and citizens of that country get the shaft. 3 million Germans from that little pink purple area get expelled back to Germany to the ethnic space where the people speak German from what was then Czechoslovakia, the Czech Republic. There's no Sudeten German refugees. There's no grandchildren, great-grandchildren. There's no media outcry about when free Sudetenland. Where's the free Sudetenland? Like, everybody loves to say free Palestine, which means destroy Israel. How about free Sudetenland? Oh, no. We're not going to free Sudetenland because they lost the war. Those three million people 
So three times, four times, three and a half times the number of Palestinian Arabs that left and got pushed out. They're going. They're gone. They're not going back. They're not getting any. They're not getting any compensation. My my point is, like, you could just relate that back to Pakistan or whatever. That era had a lot of bad outcomes for people, and there's one conflict somehow we're still nursing. There are people on both sides, by the way, who don't want to nurse this conflict anymore either. I don't want to make this like there's good guys and bad guys. Let me ask you this: When it comes to various countries in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. Egypt. Um, I'm not going to say Qatar. What was it called? Qatar? Qatar? Qatar. Qatar. Qatar, yeah. Because I think they they always stand where they stand. They never change. But Or maybe they'll change one day. Over the years, from 1948 till today, there have been times, correct me if I'm wrong, that like uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt were like, you know, virulently anti-Israel. Mm -hmm. Then they became friendly. And then mm -hmm. there's, there's a rhythm. Mm -hmm. There's a rhythm in Arab countries around the Middle East there's a rhythm in how they relate to Israel. Now, they might have their own reasons. Mm -hmm. Tell me about some of the countries that stick out in your mind who, you know, one minute want to kill them, next minute are trying to be friends with them, and what's motivating this. And So, actually, do you mind if I take a couple of steps backward? Sure, to, to, yeah. I want to give a basis to your, your, it's a great, great question. I want to give it its due. Um, it's the law of unintended consequences. And so I would say Mark this- Mark that down, law of unintended yeah. consequences. That's another good quote. I'd say George Bush initiated this with his failed war in Iraq. So he had some ideas. I don't believe that it was a conspiracy just for the oil. I believe he thought it would be a good idea to bring democracy to Iraq. It didn't work out very well. We all know that. I don't need to rehash that here. But what that did do, when you took out Saddam Hussein, was you empowered Iran dramatically, which was a real bad move. Um, but then we have a situation where Iran is so empowered and so scary and so dangerous that the leaders in the Arab countries are like, you know, we've been spending a lot of time making our people feel threatened by the Jews in our midst that aren't a real threat to us. Israel's never invading and taking over Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Syria or Egypt. That's just not going to happen. There's just not enough Jews to do it, even if they really but wanted do think, to. Do you think a country like Iran has a warped enough ideology to think like, no, they might take us over or they, they know it's not? Well, Iran, here's the thing. Forget Iran for a second. These other countries... Some of the people have that warped ideology. The governments are smart enough to stay in power. They know they're just working their people up against. They might really hate Israel, but they don't think Israel's coming to Saudi Arabia. Qatar or Qatar, whatever. Are they like they're like first place of the Israel hating country? They're like number one, right? They're fascinating. They are first place, and yet they have secret relations with Israel too. So they're 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 fascinating. What, how do you think, like Tommy? Let me ask you a question about that. He was saying like this one country, Qatar. They're the most anti-Israel country, but they have these, these secret mm -hmm. relations. What, what do you think? I mean, wh why would uh, why would a country that on the surface hates you so much still kind of on a, on the on the back end deal with you? Either money or religion. It's power, which you know. Again, you you kind of said it, and I'm just reducing it down to one word. It is it is money and religion with them, but it's mostly power. They want to be the most influential country in the Arab world. And how, how is Israel's attitude towards towards them? Israel's trying to have better relations with them because they know that they carry some weight. What is, the, what is their um, point? Because I'm sure they don't want to be completely immature and just say, we want to wipe Israel. Like, what, you, is, what, is their, what is their articulated point of why they hate Israel so much? They don't say they hate Israel, first of all. There are Iran does. Qatar does not. Qatar's point is, you want to know Qatar's point? Just turn on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is the state-empowered propaganda arm of Qatar. So anybody who says, oh, I went to Al Jazeera and I found out, okay, so now you know what Qatar's 
ruling kings and princes want you to know, which is some of it's fact. You know what's funny about Al Jazeera is um, even though they might have their agenda, they'll put like regular articles on Mm -hmm. it, seem like a, you know, kind of like a regular news Mm -hmm. source, then they'll they'll bang you with the... uh, Right, They, they are the cutter equivalent of Russia today. They are the propaganda arm of Qatar, and it's a very slick operation. And I read some of their articles. Some of their articles are good. The trouble is not that all their articles are lies. They are not. The trouble is their slant and what they will report on. Okay. Um, let's go to uh, slide six, if you don't mind, Tommy. It's um, just talk about something in Croatia, uh, a non-recognized state in Croatia with, with that involved an expulsion. And if you could talk, well, number one, about it and also bring it back into this conversation well it's it's funny so you know i talked all about these different conflicts in the 1940s in world war ii saying you know what happened in the middle east what happened between the jews and the arabs happened amongst a lot of people peoples in the 1940s but it also happened in the 1990s and so there was a state it was never recognized by the world but there was a group of ethnic people that lived for many many generations in croatia so they were basically croatians but they were of serb ethnicity and during the war in, in Yugoslavia, they tried to form their own state, and Serbia was the aggressor in that war, and they, they basically took a part of Croatia and called it Krajina, and it was a Serbian-dominated state. So the U.S., we didn't like that, and we supplied the Croats and the Bosnians weapons and training so they could fight the Serbs off. And we sent U.S. military advisors. This is in the 1990s. And once we empowered the Croats enough to win that war, they expelled every last Serb, 200,000 people, similar proportion to the Arabs who left Palestine. With with no big pushback from the world or the UN or anything. Have you heard free Krajina lately? Is that like something people say on podcasts now? I I don't don't listen to everything. Tommy has a lot of guests. Maybe one of his guests had it. Yeah, no, just all those people are gone. All right. Um, What about... uh... I want to, you know, stay on this these topics, but I just want to go a little um, off topic for the moment. Kind of a current event, which is obviously Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we don't have any slide for it, but not that we need one because everyone's kind of up. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the misconceptions that your average U.S. citizen has about the Russian army? Well, that, that's a great one. Um, one that we think th- that we think they've got a competent army. That's an, put that in the quote book. That we think the Russians have a competent army. It's really fat. And this has come out. It comes out every generation. I read a book. Actually, you led me to this book. You told me that the most interesting thing you ever read in history was learning about World War One. And in the past couple of years, I read a book on World War One, And it's the same as now. Russia is huge. They've got huge landmass. They've got lots of people. They're educated people. And they've got a huge army. And their army sucks. It was, that was the truth in World War One. It was the truth in the Cold War when we were afraid of them. What, what is the A, the problem with the Russian army? Why can't they get their themselves together? And B, what is the media and others, what is their um, motive in implying that it's a very scary army? Okay, so question one, why does it suck? Um, I will quote what U.S. military officials who know this stuff have said is that they don't have a proper non-commissioned officer corps. And that's the primary reason. There's also tremendous corruption. That's huge also. But a non-commissioned officer corps, that's the sergeants and that's the corporals. So if the U.S. is in a war somewhere and we're invading a country, we're sending our army in. If the lieutenant gets killed, the sergeant, who is not a regular officer, he steps up, he becomes the acting lieutenant. If the sergeant gets killed, 
the corporal steps up and becomes the acting lieutenant. They just we can keep on going down the line. We've got a very and even when that guy doesn't get killed, the sergeant does all the day to day stuff. So the sergeant makes sure everybody has a blanket to sleep at night because you know your soldiers who are cold all night and stay up don't fight as well. He makes sure everybody gets fed. He makes sure everybody's happy. He has like little meetings and talks to people, or he makes sure there's discipline. The lieutenant does the bigger war planning stuff. In Russia, they don't trust the people on the underneath. They don't even have practically a non-commissioned officer's corps. So one, the lieutenants have to do all that practical stuff. Even the generals do. All these generals went into Ukraine and got killed because they can't trust the people under them. If you trust, ki- can't trust them because they're incompetent or they have other motives? Incompetent. The, the general's like, oh my God, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Let me go in there. And then the Ukrainians track the guy and kill him. They killed like 20 Russian generals. We had one U.S. general killed in Afghanistan in 20 years. They had 20 Russian generals killed in like two months. So a guy like Putin who's overseeing this, is he like, man, my army's incompetent, but mm-hmm. I have a certain image and I just scare people. Or, mm-hmm. is, he, or is he just yes. like, no, I think my army's okay. Or he's- I, I, I think he's got to know now his army sucks. His army sucks. What's, what do you think? You'd only be hypothesizing, but you'll give a better hypothesis than most. What's in Putin's head right now? Is he like, man, my army sucks, but I, like, I'm still I'm in this. What's I can't back down. I cannot back down. I Listen, I am a judo black belt. I walk, I drive around. I go around Russia. Everybody knows I'm the man. Even though I'm a dictator, I still would win a popular vote. That's true. He's popular in Russia. I ride around on horses without my shirt on. I am it. His ego is so big. It's going to be his downfall. Yeah, he can't let that go. No, he can't. He can't. He can't. He can't. It's too far. Mm-hmm. And he's been, he's been there what twenty years. That's right. Like That's right. Twenty years. years. Right. Twenty years. And then he took like two years off, and somebody filled in for him. Mendyenev. Mendyenev. Yeah, yeah. And that guy's still lingering around. Yeah. So he's got no choice. He's got to finish him off. You got that exactly right, Tommy. He's he's and and I hear he's got cancer too. Which again, that's just speculation. Again, my fourteen-year-old told me about this, but it kind of makes sense. Like. Hey, I just stomped Syria. Let me use this great army to take back Ukraine because Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union. I want all those Ru- Russian speakers back in Russia and all those territories that were ours back. Matter of fact, the Russian Empire before the Soviet Union was bigger than the Soviet Union. He wants all that back. Ego. What, what is your prediction? I mean, you're not, you're not a psychic or a fortune teller, but what, where will Russia, Ukraine be at in one year from today? Oh, I hate these. I want to tell you I hate these, and I and I and and when we when you have me back on in a year, I'm going to be wrong. I'm going to start with that. We can retract the question. Let's Tom, unless Tommy's really curious of your opinion. Should we should we like press him to answer it? While he thinks about it, I have another question for him. Uh huh. Okay, so I personally think Putin. I think he owns fifty one percent of Bitcoin, and the reason why I mm. think that is because I think those oligarchs would have whacked him in mm. seconds mm. if he didn't have the money to repay him or so on and so forth. And all these sanctions that they're putting on and whatever they're doing, I don't think he cares at all. I think he's got the 51% of the Bitcoin, and I think that's why he's still walking around. Because otherwise, why wouldn't those algorithms go handle him? I mean, I know he's super protected. I understand. No, that's Listen, I don't know the details, but you're on to something. When you talk about how he's controlling money and controlling people through money... For sure, there's something there's something deeper going on. Your theory is as good as anyone. I don't understand how he's been able to lock down such a deep level of power in that society. Um, but there's definitely something going. And there are also these theories, but I think they're substantiated that he's the richest man in the world. But none of it's in his name. It's all in those oligarchs' names. But I think that 
I think that the way, and it might very well include Bitcoin as well, but it includes a lot of assets that they stole from the Russian people and that they've manipulated in a very criminal way all over the world. But it might just be he has all these people holding whatever money, including certainly including crypto, 100% including crypto, um, but that these people all know if they cross him, they die. What about um, Ukraine? Like, obviously, a lot of people in the U.S. feel bad for Ukrainians, mm -hmm. which obviously, if there's innocent people being killed, it, they should feel bad for them or, or mm -hmm. feel sympathy for them or whatever they want to feel. But there seems to be a lot of misconceptions about Ukraine on multiple levels, mm -hmm. your average U.S. citizen. Can you talk a little bit about Ukraine on some uh, some misconceptions that you could possibly set straight? I'll start with my own misconception because when the whole Russian military buildup started, I thought I, I'll tell you so this is how I, I get things wrong, and I, and I, I you know I get some things really right, and sometimes I know you ask me a question about next year, I'll tell you what it's going to be, and it might not be next year, but I'll tell you something that's coming. This is a case where I love what I got wrong. It was interesting. I underestimated them like everybody did, and really fascinating because they just didn't want the war. Russia already occupied some Ukrainian territory. They know Russia's a big, like, it's like they're like a mad bull, you know what I mean? Or a deranged bear, maybe the more, the more apropos metaphor. But you know, they don't want, of course the Ukrainians don't want that, no matter how good their army is. So the Ukrainians, they weren't even mobilizing their army when Russia was building up forces and people kind of knew Russia was going to invade. I thought my prediction then, you know, in February would have been Russia's going to invade. They're going to very, in short order, take over all of Ukraine. And then there's going to be a, an uprising and they're just going to bleed Russia terribly. And so I was completely wrong. They decided to stand up and fight one-on-one -on -one and they're beating them. So that shocked me. Uh, and I think that, again, that goes back to your original question. We really we have these beliefs about the Russian army. Um, they suck. And Ukraine is a much smaller western-backed army using american and western weapons and tactics also using russian weapons even against them they're capturing they're using old soviet weapons they're capturing current russian weapons they just we've taught them how to fight and guess what they're fighting their home territory if uh if, if a news reporter on cnn or i'm just saying cnn it could be any 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 of those came on and was talking about the russian army are they understanding anything you're saying? Or they're like, man, the Russian army is scary and they're doing... No, I think, I think people are seeing it. I think you can't not see it today. You can't not see it today. It's just a point that can't be overemphasized. Like, the Russian army is terrible. You can be... Listen, there are guys out there that weigh 350 pounds that really don't know how to fight. They scare... If they're deranged, they scare the hell out of me. You know what I mean? So it's not the Russian army is not scary. It's just not competent. Another good quote. I have one quick question before you guys go off this. Why don't they ever talk about how many times Ukraine violated when they went to te to check them for nuclear weapons? They are, they were the dirtiest country there was. Eight times NATO went there. That's why they're not in NATO. Yeah, there's innocent people there, but Ukraine is a dirty country. So I, what, I don't know about nuclear weapons, but I do know that there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine. And listen, I, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Um, I actually would like to flip to, um, we're talking about Budapest. The, the Budapest Agreement. We can go to slide eight, Tommy, that would be great. The Budapest Agreement. 
so you're right, Tommy. Um, Ukraine definitely has a lot of corruption, and we're definitely overlooking that because um, we're choosing the lesser evil in this battle. But we made a commitment, actually. It's interesting. People talk about, hey, why are we getting involved in this? Is this really our business? Kind of Russia's backyard. Like, just leave it alone. You're, you saying, you're saying some people are saying, like, why are we even getting involved? Yeah. In any why do we even send these people any weapons? Why are we, like, sending them money? Well, why are we sending Ukraine weapons and money? Yeah. Why are we training them? It's really none of our business. We're just going to piss Russia off. Like, why are we that, doing that? Would that would be mostly people on the right, would you say? Yes. Okay. But also the farther left but, would but, certainly but agree. In general, on your, the right. Your average Biden voter, excuse me, your average Biden voter on the left is all for sending aid to Ukraine, am I correct? I can't speak for them, but I mean, you know, Biden is sending aid, so I'd assume Biden voters, like, you know, like any political group will fall into line. Okay, got it. So as, as it's coming up, give us some interest. So in the, Budapest. the Budapest Agreement in 1994, you know, Ukraine used to have nuclear weapons, and so the US, France, um, and Russia signed an agreement saying, if is Ukraine gives up all their nuclear weapons, sends them back to Russia, we promise to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So again, it's kind of our job. Like the Ukrainians like gave up nuclear weapons because we were afraid of nuclear weapons all over the world. And we kind of agreed, all, all of us, you know, us in Russia especially, that they get to be free. So I got no problem with us sending them weapons, even if it perpetuates an ugly war, it's better than ex like dishonoring ourselves and accepting tyranny. Got it. And 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 by the way, just again to go back to your point, Tommy. Even if it's a corrupt government, I think all governments are kind of nasty and corrupt. And Ukraine is particularly corrupt. You're not wrong. Cool. Let's uh, let's go to slide nine, if that's okay. Um, you know, obviously there are people who are upset about the amount of aid that the U.S. gives Israel mm -hmm. financially and otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, so as as tab nine is coming up, if you could just, before we get to what's, what we're gonna talk about and on that tab, if you could just talk about that theme. Like obviously, you know, someone's like, man, we give so much aid to Israel. Like, mm -hmm. What's up with that? There are people, we need aid, you know, we need uh, some of that money for X, Y, Z. So there's a fact that's bandied about, that's, it's a fact, but it's decontextualized. People say Israel gets the most foreign aid of any country in the world. Okay, so Israel doesn't actually get money from the US, we send them weapons. And we send them about $3 billion a year worth of weapons. Three, so the U.S. the US sends Israel $3 billion worth of weapons per year? Every year. So, and Israel does little things like they test out those weapons, they show us how those weapons work really great against the Russian weapons, they show us tactics that work with those weapons, things that we like. And obviously, just to pause there, correct me if I'm wrong, the U.S. is no inherent lover of Israel. It's strictly because it benefits them to have a presence in that area, correct? Well, I'll go back a little bit when you say that. We also give Egypt about 2.5 billion. Egypt's the number two recipient worth of weapons because we just gave both sides a lot of weapons to agree not to fight each other. I just wanted to tell Tommy, it's uh, tab nine, costs to keep US troops in Japan and South Korea. There you go. So anyway, um, so yeah, so between Israel and Egypt, we're giving about $5.5 billion a year worth of US weapons in order that one, Israel would feel safe to give back territory to Egypt and have peace with Egypt and Suez Canal would run. That's in the U.S. interest. In order that Israel doesn't fight with Egypt in U.S. interest. In order that Egypt not be aligned with Russia, U.S. interest. So we give the Egyptians weapons too because we gave weapons to the Israelis. And as a matter of fact, when the Iraq war happened, we forgave all of the debt that Egypt had. And we didn't forget Israel's debt. So whatever the case, they both get a lot of money for weapons out of our foreign aid budget. So again, Israel, $3.5 billion a year, roughly. 
Now, we also give weapons to some other countries, so Japan and South Korea or others, we give them weapons to the tune of... The United States spent more than $34 billion to maintain military presence in Japan and South Korea. Oops, yeah. So we send a lot of weapons there, but it's not under the foreign aid budget, so people say Israel gets more. That's under the military budget. It, it, who cares where the budget is? We're sending more money to defend Japan, bigger, stronger country, less threats. South Korea, bigger, bigger country. We're sending more, and guess what else we send there besides weapons, something kind of valuable? Humans, 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 your children, soldiers. You know what we don't send to Israel to defend Israel? Soldiers, humans, they just use the weapons. And by the way, oh, gee, Israel blew up a nuclear power plant in Iraq right before, a decade before, we went to war with Iraq. Isn't it nice that when we went to war with Iraq, they didn't have nuclear weapons? <laughs> that was nice, thank you, Israel. Oh. Gee, in 2009, they blew up a nuclear power plant in Syria. Oh, yeah, Syria had one of the most massive, ugly civil wars in the world where they used all the chemical weapons they could. Aren't we glad they didn't have nuclear weapons? Yes, thank you, Israel. I think we got our money's worth. And by the way, Germany, in order to we send weapons and humans to Germany to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year to defend them from Russia. Like, can the Germans step up and do it for themselves? I think Trump. I think Trump actually pointed. He's he wasn't wrong about that. I you know I don't like everything he says. He wasn't wrong to bring up that subject. Um, these what you just laid down for the last five minutes or so. Your average. Um, oh, there we go. Tommy found a link there. Yeah, your your average uh, journalist or your average politician or mm -hmm. congressperson who's saying whatever they're saying are they unfamiliar with this stuff sounds like they are i i think that people are unfamiliar with the context i think the average person is really unfamiliar with the context because everybody looks at the foreign aid budget and says israel's way at the top and they don't think of the historic context that it was because of a peace treaty with egypt and that egypt gets a similar amount of money and that we keep them both in our pocket to the best of our abilities and that there's this whole military budget, which is still U.S. taxpayers' money, that dwarfs that. So they are not the number one recipient, and they're getting zero actual dollars. They're getting weapons that they're trying out, and they're showing us how those weapons... Do you know that the, the, the most successful U.S. fighter jet, the most successful fighter jet in the world, period, is the F-15. It's got something like 100 or 200 kills and no losses in, 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 in air combat. The first country that used it in air combat and started shooting down Russian jets was Israel. They showed us how our thing works. They, sh they were basically the test bed. They were the beta test for the U.S. weapon systems. The way the human mind works, if your average person who, your average U.S. citizen who was very upset about the aid to Israel, whatever, just watch this. They watch this show we're doing and they just heard the facts they could look them up they could confirm it anyway do you think the human mind is such that they're just like i'm not or, or like man i'll wake up a little bit or do you think most most people who believe the opposite are like i still believe it i don't care who this guy you know yeah so it, this brings us back to the nature of reality I, thing that's what i was thinking. yeah i feel that i feel that um i heard this great quote there's, there's this podcast i listened to that actually turned me on to Kastrup. um hoffman already knew um, it's called Theories of Everything with Kurt Jaimungle. He's wonderful, wonderful. And I actually, to, partly to answer your questions, I want to recommend that podcast um, because it has all these people with this really serious science pedigree, famous people with accolades who are saying the same stuff about this, the process of mind that I'm saying. And they say it on such a higher level than I can even understand because I'm not a scientist, but it just shows me that I'm not just talking out of my intuition. There's people that back this up with hard science. Um, anyway, 
I heard a quote on that show. I don't remember whom it's from, but it was so beautiful. It was saying, if you look at a human being, every, every one of us is like an elephant with a rider. And the elephant is your genetics, your upbringing, your intuitions, your gut feelings, your fears, your hatred, your anger, your subconscious. The elephant is everything underneath. And on top, the rider is the thinking mind. And we as a society think of the think the person on top as driving the elephant. But the truth is the guy on top is public relations for the elephant. The elephant's gonna do what the elephant's gonna do. And then the guy on top, you, the concept of you, and this is why the Buddhists say there is no you, the concept of you is speaking and justifying what the elephant did. So if you already believe something, logic will not necessarily change it. Excellent answer, and I, I like that you brought that in. Could we do the 10th uh, tab, please? Um, it's a tab about uh, Jewish refugees from Arab countries who all en ended up in Israel. And as that's coming up, Jeff, could you start talking about that? So this is actually goes back to the first point I made. It's just like the India-Pakistan thing. The war actually wasn't limited to Palestine. There was a war in the entirety of the Middle East between the Jews and the Arabs, except that we lost as Jews everywhere except for Palestine. That's it. You look at all that, all of these people, like, you know, you look over, Iran had 150,000 Jews. Now there's, no, that's not right. That's not right. There can't be 10 Jews left in Iran. That's wrong. Whatever the case. You never know. I, I, Iraq had 100,000 Jews. This is, these numbers. So these numbers might be up, but the theme is a theme. The, the theme is this. There were about 800,000, 820,000 Jews. Says there's zero Jews in Libya. Yeah, that, that's probably right. Right, right. Yeah, there's zero in Libya, there's zero in Saudi Arabia, but all of these countries had thriving ancient communities of Jews that were expelled at the same time that the Arabs were either pushed out or voluntarily left Israel. Some of them were legitimately pushed out. There was legitimate violence in both directions. So all of these people are now just called Israelis. They're not called Jewish refugees from the Arab world. And their great children and their great grandchildren, they're all just Jews and Israelis. I want to throw one more thing in here because you're bringing me back to the subject of Israel. Um, you didn't ask this question, but everything you're saying just kind of begs this question. There's a very popular thing that people talk about. They say that Israel on the far left, so it's not respected, but I want to address it anyway. They say Israel's a white supremacist state. I've heard, I've heard that. I mean, that I've, yeah, I've heard them. Say, I've heard people say that. Yeah. So if you if you go back, you know, we don't have to physically go back to the map. If you go back to looking is there, at that, is it the map, same conversation about how it's an apartheid state too. Uh, definitely, but but let's let's go to the the even more pernicious, the you, more you hateful. Could, you can address both. I can, yeah, any way you want. Yeah. So going back to the original thing, so a white supremacist state. Yet, fifty three percent of the population of Israel are Jews from Arab countries, so they're ethnic Middle Easterners, and they're considered, I guess, by popular culture, brown people, not white people. So that's fifty three percent, and then we've got about twenty percent of Israel voting population in Israel are um, Arabs, most of them Muslim. So now we're up to uh, 53, 63, 73% of Israel. About 5% of Israel are neither. They're just Christians or not religious. Some of them are Buddhists from Vietnam because they took in a few Vietnamese refugees in 79. So you've got a country that's like 80 something percent not of European origin. And I'll throw this out too. I don't really think that European Jews are white. <laughs> well, we're going to get to that. I was going to ask you about that. I, I wrote that down. 
Before we get to that, what about the contention that Israel is an apartheid state? So Israel itself, um, by definition, is not because the 20% population of Israel that's Muslim all votes. And as a matter of fact, it's really interesting, something fascinating. That's, that's interesting. You, just, you actually just nullified that by definition. You didn't even give your opinion yet. Like I said, I don't think my opinions matter as much as the facts that I understand. So like, I feel very passionately about a lot of things, um, but my passion doesn't make it true. Got it. Okay. You were going to continue about uh, the apartheid state, or you said everything? Um, I was going to go a little further. It's a fascinating thing. This is a detail. Um, the outgoing Israeli government, people are kind of upset that Netanyahu's back. I don't like him much either. He's done some good things, but he's kind of a shady character, in my opinion. But the outgoing government, um, they they included a Islamist party. It's the first time a ruling coalition in Israel ever had a Muslim party in it because the parliamentary system just because Muslims vote doesn't mean you need to let them into the ruling party so the reason they were able to kick Netanyahu out was because a bunch of people on the right and the left and the most Muslim party in the country got together and made a government so again is Israel completely fair to all the Muslims do Muslims get the same privileges in society that Jews get you know, all societies tend to favor their primary ethnic group, and I ha I'm sorry to say no, they don't. But they had a ruling party, including Islamicists. Islamicists in their ruling party, that's just not apartheid, that's ridiculous. Is Israel a little unfair to Muslims, or maybe more than a little? Yeah, sure. U.S. is a little unfair to black people sometimes, you know, and other groups, you know. And as a matter of fact, all these preaching European countries all their Muslims are in ghettos right now in Paris and they have uprisings in Paris. So Israel, imperfect society, they had a Muslim party in their government. Excellent. You were going to mention something about the origins of, I think, Ashkenazi Jews. You didn't say. Yeah, that. I don't count us as white at all. Okay. So, so just, just, just to break it down for everyone, there's different sects of Judaism. There's Ashkenazi Jews who are known as like, let's say Eastern European Jews and, and other, but tell, tell me about the origins of Ashkenazi Jews. So, you know, from what I've read, um, there's been some interesting genetic research. They follow the mitochondrial DNA. So mitochondrial DNA, mitochondria, mitochondrial DNA, it's a part of everybody's cells, and the mitochondria only is matrilineal, and it comes down the woman's line. And so they've found that Jews from all over the world share similar genes with each other and share similar genes with other people from the Middle East. Sephardic also? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, here's the difference between the Sephardic or Mizrahi, the Eastern Jews, and the Ashkenazi, European Jews. You say Eastern, you mean the Middle Eastern? Middle Eastern, yeah. They say Mizrahi more than Sephardic. Sephardic means Spanish, and a lot of them went to Turkey. So we, we in the U.S. often call them Sephardic. In Israel, they call them Mizrahi, meaning Eastern, the ones from all of those Arab-speaking Arabic speaking countries. But the one thing that makes us Ashkenazi Jews unique from the other Jews around the world is our mitochondrial DNA. Matrilineally, we don't have the same background as the other Jews. Matrilineally, we're not Middle Eastern. So the evidence, so the interpretation I read of that evidence, which makes sense, is that when Israel was destroyed 2,000 years ago, families didn't go to Europe. Single men went to Europe, converted women, and so all of us are by definition, and we stayed in the, in the ghettos, so we didn't marry. It's not like over the years we became more and more European. We were initially 50% European, 50% Middle Eastern, right off the top. It's why we look the way we do. And everybody says it's anti-Semitic to say somebody looks Jewish. Guess what? People know I'm Jewish. I walk around, they look at me, they know I'm Jewish. Maybe they can mistake me from, I could be mistaken from somebody from another Mediterranean country, but nobody's mistaking me for a Swede, you know? Nobody. It's not anti-Semitic, it's fact.
question. I'm half Middle Eastern. I'm not European. And if I was European, if I was white, which really just means European, shouldn't I be able to join a white nationalist group if I was white? I don't think they want me. Actually, Something tells me they don't want me. <laughs> they don't want me, do they, Tommy? No, no. They don't let Tommy in either. It's okay. Yeah. Um, next. The one, the one big thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, I know with the the Jewish community when COVID hit mm -hmm. really bad, you know, they were the Jewish community were, were the first ones to really come out and bring light and saying, "Hey, look, you are messing up our uh, our women's, you know, mm. having getting their period because you know the the real I don't want to say cult, but the real Jewish, you know, people together, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they live and correct me if I'm wrong, they live and die by that menstrual cycle." And when COVID hit with the, the vax, it, it started messing up their menstrual cycles. So I don't know specifically about the menstrual cycle, but I do, I, I'm going to like parse down your question too. You're talking about the very religious Jewish community and the fact that yeah. there was some real bias from my understanding. I wasn't up in New York City, but I followed this in the news. There was some bias against them where they were like, they were not allowed to congregate the way they w wanted to choose because there was too many people together and they follow their laws, the laws that I've inherited that I don't follow as loosely, they follow those laws much more strictly. So they wanted to follow the words of their leadership and they weren't allowed to, while other groups, like if people wanted to have um, protests after the murder of George Floyd, they could gather in large groups, but you couldn't have a large Hasidic Jewish wedding. So there was a lack of equity there. And I'm not, I'm not even going to make judgment on what the religious Jewish community does, and I'm not making judgment on whether you should let people together to protest a murder and racism. I'm just saying that my understanding was there was a real disconnect there, and they were very upset about that. That's not my Jewish community in the sense that I, I'm related to them, but I don't practice the way they do, so it's hard for me to really tell you what they were thinking, but I can tell you there was a bias against them, is what I understand. I think it has to do with the mikvahs, too, according to the mikvahs. They couldn't do anything. Nobody could do anything, but somehow people could protest for racial equity, but nobody could do anything else. That was the exception. I think people were offended by that. I live down here, not in New York City, so I wasn't part of that. Let's, uh, let's, uh... Yeah, we had a we had a really, really nice guy, in, and he, he really broke it down, mm. and those who followed it very you know strictly they weren't having it because like you said you could go out and protest but mm -hmm. they weren't allowed to just go meet together and then on top of that the menstrual cycle was off and then that's when it came out in the news and they were the first ones to say hey there's something wrong yeah here. um i just wanted to uh, switch gears unless Jeff wanted to comment on that. I did actually. I, Tommy, you're bringing up something that's important and it's bigger even than, than, than the part. You're, you're like just inching into an area that's extraordinarily important. Yeah. Um, what's happened is like, there's a lot of wonderful ideas on the left. I consider myself in the center so I can see the beautiful ideas on the left and the right and I can see the toxic stuff on the left and the right because I'm sitting in the center. It doesn't make me right. It just makes me able to see both sides. I'm 100% with you. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. I'm all for many progressive values, but the trouble is when that becomes a religion. So when you can say our group gets special rights and we can talk about this, about these progressive issues, which I happen to, by the way, think are important, but you can't practice your Hasidic Jewish religion, that's one religion subjugating another one. And and again, that's why I think that I'm not changing the minds of people who are progressive, and again, 
progressive with a capital P, people who are like, just like blindly part of the faith, the religion of progressivism, I can't change their minds because it's religion first and you justify later. Excellent. Um, I want to get back to Netanyahu. You, we might mm-hmm. have a little bit. Talk a little bit about, just educate everyone on a little bit of his history. Mm. I, think, I think his brother was a famous, it was, was he in the raid on Antebi, his brother, or he was? His brother was. His brother was, led the raid on Antebi. His brother led the raid on Antebi. Um, everyone should look that up if you don't know what it is. Um, but anyway, and then uh, talk, talk, talk a little bit about the history of Netanyahu. He's an interesting fellow, and he's got a really interesting background. Um, his father, who just died at like 102, um, was a historian and wrote a really definitive um, history of Israel and the Jews. And he really shaped his family ideologically, which is interesting um, because Netanyahu doesn't really have a lot of ideology. He's really, I think he's kind of a narcissist, which doesn't mean I hate all his policies. It means I think he's about him. Um, but his brother, Yonatan, was the older brother, was considered the more strong. He was the Netanyahu who was going to be prime minister. And Benjamin um, got famous um, being the UN spokesman to the Israel spokesman to the UN in the 1970s, beautifully articulate, He's super intelligent. But there's certain things you can't take away from a person. So Benjamin Netanyahu is super intelligent and super articulate in English. He went to MIT, and it's interesting. I'll, I'll get back to the raid on Entebbe in a second. We'll talk about his brother, but but the pertinent one that I think you're asking is the current one. Um, fascinating thing, like. I remember when he wouldn't do what the Obama administration wanted him to do, whether it was good or bad or indifferent is not the point. One of, one of Obama's guys called him a chicken shit. It, really fascinating. That, that's the wrong guy. To, I mean, it's an, an, an inaccurate comment. It was, it's, 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 it's not just inaccurate. It's the opposite of the truth. Now, I, I, don't, I don't really particularly like Netanyahu. I really don't respect him. I don't think he's, he's got a belief system. I think he's kind of like just a narcissist and will do what he needs to do. He's kind of like... He's got some fascist tendencies. He's not a fascist because he's in a Democrat. He got out of the office, but whatever. Calling him a chicken shit is such a joke. So who's who's the person that we have jokes about how tough they are? There's one person in the world we joke about how tough he's tougher than like the moon or whatever. Chuck Norris. Right. So that primarily comes from a movie, a particular movie, by the way. He does all the karate stuff. But there's a movie where Chuck Norris goes into rescuing people in an airport in Beirut. And he goes in with his team and walks down the aisle and starts shooting guys in the head that were going to kill the hostages, right? So yeah, Netanyahu actually did the real event. <laughs> it was actually, it was in, it was in Israel. I don't know if you can Google that, Tommy, the raid on Antebi. How do you spell Antebi? No, that's not Antebi. This is Sabina, the Sabina. Oh, okay. The Sabina raid. Antebi is good to put up, right? Um, so yeah, but up? we're going to get to that next. But the Sabina airline hijacking oh, yeah, was... That's right, that's right. Okay. The Sabina airline hijacking in Israel. Netanyahu physically was walking down the aisle of an airplane. Shooting and he's terrorists. smashing, shooting terrorists in the head. Chuck Norris's reputation is based on Netanyahu's real life. So he's a jerk, but he's not chicken shit. <laughs> Excellent. And then you want to, I think Tommy's going to put up one of those. Do you want, oh, here we go. Yeah, that's the that's Sabina one. Yeah. yeah you see those people standing. Netanyahu and, and, and his crowd, Ehud Barak, who was a previous prime minister of Israel, led the team. They literally, they told these people, the first thing they did was they snuck and they, and they drained all the fuel out of the plane. The, the terrorists like, whoa, the plane's broken. You got to fix the plane. They're like, okay, we'll send, we're going to send some guys to help you. They'll be right there. <laughs> You'll love these guys. You'll love these guys. They'll be right over. These are our best mechanics. They're going to right. shoot you in the head, but you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they came over in white suits like mechanics and then they smashed their way into the airplane. They killed them all. And I think, I think all the hostages survived. 1972. Yeah. 
Okay. Netanyahu is there. He did it. So he's not chicken shit. He's a jerk, but he's not chicken shit. How about Raiden and Tebby? Can we put that up? Yeah, so that was a bigger thing. How, how, how do you spell Antebi? E N T E B B. Yeah, yeah. Raid on Antebi. It'll come up. Yeah, so that was his brother, Yonatan. Um, that was that was like one of the classic examples of of how um, the Palestinian issue got into the public forefront was through terrorism. And again, that doesn't mean that the people don't have rights. It doesn't mean I'm against the Palestinians. But they got part of how they got famous was terrorism. So. They hijacked an airline that was, uh, I think it was an Air France jet filled with Jews on its way to Tel Aviv, and they landed it in Entebbe. Idi um, Amin was on the... Idi Amin. Well, Idi Amin welcomed them to Uganda. Right. Because Idi Amin decided he was going to be a big man and, and, help, and help the Palestinians against the bad Israelis. Did the UN ever condemn him? He did a lot of crazy stuff. They probably condemned him a couple of times. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the first thing they did, and this is why, like I say, this terrorism and this hatred is anti-Semitic in nature. The first thing they did was they released everybody from the jet that wasn't a Jew or an Israeli. They kept all, all the Israelis and all the Jews they kept. Not just the Israelis, all the Jews too, everybody. They kept them all. And they brought them out. They took them off the airplane. They put them into the airport. And they kept them hostages with guns. Palestinian and I think German terrorists too. Just, just, just to throw in, you get some left-wing Germans. Not just the right-wing Germans. The left-wing Germans don't like us either. Cover everybody. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in Israel, they were like really concerned and they were saying, you need to release all of Palestinian prisoners, which themselves were people who did things like this. I mean, the, the terrorists were demanding. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to kill all these hostages. That's right. That's right. Unless you, unless you release the Palestinians that you're holding. That's right. right. Which happened to people who did other airplane hijackings before that, things like that. Like they, they weren't, they weren't arrested for like, you know, having bad manners. So anyway, so they're sitting around trying to figure out what to do. And they're like, you know, like. And somebody pointed out, like, oh, shit, you know what? That Antibri airport, there's something about it that's really good. They're like, what? We built it. We've got all the blueprints to that airport. We know exactly where everything is. And so they put together a team, and they flew. And they were talking, actually, about landing in Kenya, because Kenya was a friendly country, and having commandos swim through Lake Victoria and rescuing them there, because then you could sneak up from the, from, from the lake. And then somebody said, whoa, Dude, you know, Lake Victoria is filled with um, Nile crocodiles. Every, all the commandos will get eaten. They're like, okay, we're not doing that one. So instead, they flew a jet, uh, not, not a jet, a transport plane straight into Entebbe Airport. They had a limousine that looked just like Idi Amin's because Idi Amin used to keep coming by there. And the limousine drives up, looks just like his, just like his Mercedes. The guys get out of the limousine. They shoot the guards at the door. And then all the rest of the guys come out. They killed all the terrorists. I think one hostage, one guy was just too excited that he was being saved and he stood up, he got shot. They saved all the rest of the hostages and they flew them back. One Israeli got killed. It was Yonatan Netanyahu, who was the commander of the mission. And so that was like considered a great success for Israel and yet a terrible tragedy. There he is on the left, Yoni Netanyahu. He was considered the more capable of the Netanyahu brothers. Excellent. Before we, this has been pretty awesome, huh? Um, very educational. Before we wrap up, uh, I just want to totally switch gears, totally switch gears to a subject that you don't know much about, I don't know much about, but it's an entertaining, mm -hmm. interesting subject, and you've been told about it, so I mm -hmm. think through your lens, there are those, and you know, it may be true, I'm not going to say it's not true, there are those who think the earth is flat, I'm not saying it's flat, I have no idea if it's what shape it is, but you have been... Uh, I don't know. Uh, My next door neighbor is an expert on the subject. Right, right. So t t tell us about what, what are the flat earthers contend? We have this nice. So, map so apparently this is, so this, if you look at this map, the only problem with this map is it should be, it should be circular 
you know, not spherical, not not a ball, but circular. And basically, there is a wall on the side of it. This is according to the flat earthers. No, this is the truth. Okay. No, yeah, yeah, no, according to the flat earthers. Yeah, I'm not a flat earther. Um, I believe in like, you know, I, I believe in, I've got some questions about the nature of reality. I pretty much think I know how the, the earth operates in this three-dimensional reality we live in. But, but if the earth is flat, this is how it's... This is what I've been told. Okay. So then the problem is like, well, what's there on, on those edges? So apparently there's a wall around the edges there. And what we call Antarctica is really, that's fake. There's, there's really, there's something behind that wall. The government will kill you if you go there. You can't really go to Antarctica. That's fake. Um, and people say, well, what about satellite imagery? There's no satellites. That's fake. Um, basically, it's just a flat surface. How could you possibly imagine flying through space on a ball? That doesn't make any sense. And um, the government is just keeping it down. Now, here's the interesting thing. I, I went and I challenged this guy and I said, I said, you know, okay, let's say I agree with you on that. I was like, you know what else is bullshit? Airplanes. Those things can't fly. And like, how could that thing, that like big tubular thing, like get up in the air and then take you thousands of miles? Like there's lots of things. My point was there's lots of things that don't seem plausible that are real. And he just looked at me. He's like, well, I see airplanes fly. I'm like, I don't know. I see the globe when I fly around on an airplane. Like, come on. Excellent. All right, Tommy, you have any uh, wrap-up questions for Jeff? Because he obviously knows a lot about a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'd like to get his uh, opinion on 2024 with China, Taiwan, what what your prediction is. Yeah, it, I mean, listen, I think that the best thing that happened for Taiwan was Ukraine. I think that slowed them down. From what everybody's saying, like, um, you know, the president of China has consolidated a lot of power, and they feel they can make a move on Taiwan. And... Um, it's an area that I know less about, but I think that the fact that Russia failed so badly, and there's some big problems with invading Taiwan. I do understand China's getting more aggressive. The whole world actually recognizes Taiwan as part of China. So they're saying, hey, this is just our territory. We just need to take it back. And we're saying, no, we're on their side and we'll keep giving them weapons like we did Ukraine. And we even are saying we might get into that war. So it's kind of a scary fault line in the world because China's moving on that. I don't really know and fully understand if China, what, what I, so I think China, listen, I think it's going to get worse there. This, my prediction is this, let me not make a hard prediction. Let me make a soft one that I'm confident in. The issue is not going away and China's going to keep on pushing on them and nibbling on them. Whether there's an actual full out naval invasion, I don't know if that's by 2024, but a lot of experts are saying yes soon, maybe within five years, maybe not two. Um, but it'd be interesting to see. I, I don't find people dying interesting, but just like the political element of it, interesting to see, like, can they pull off this massive, massive naval invasion of people defending their own home territory? China's got a big, strong army. It's, it's a big test for China because they never gave up that Taiwan is part of China and they will rule Taiwan again one day. That's in the ideology all the way down. So they're pushing. It's very much like the Russian-Ukrainian ideology, except Russia actually agreed to give up Ukraine. China never agreed to give up Taiwan. So I'd say it's, it's, it's heavy on their agenda. You're going to hear more and more about that. That's my hard prediction. My concern is that, so I think China's, I, don't, I think China's going to make their move because mm -hmm. they, now, now they have a weak president. In. Let's just be honest. He, you know, this is probably the golden ticket for them to make a move right now. Mm -hmm. So he makes a, so he makes a move. Boom. Biden has all the pressure from, you know, the citizens to sanction China. Boom, boom. Now, China's already ready for this. They, mm -hmm. They're patient. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not like us. We sanction them. Boom. 
they cut everything off to mm-hmm. come to us because they don't care. There are, mm-hmm. Their economy is already in trenches, mm-hmm. and all they want to be is the superpower of the world. If he sanctions them, let's just say they do make their move right before the election. Biden's got all the pressure on him. He sanctions them. Don't you think they'll cut us off in a heartbeat, being that they're pretty much aligning with Russia as we speak, Serbia, the whole way down the line? You're making a, a really fantastic point, actually. You're, 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 I, I agree with you 100% on this, and it's more. It's, it's even more. I, I'm, I'm going to explain to you why you're right. Um, Russia's economy is like the size of like a minor U.S. state. We are, I mean, we might not be crushing Putin and the oligarchs, but we are crushing that country's economy. And I got to tell you, it affects their ability to wage war. It's not just that their army's incompetent. They're incompetent. They can't even resupply now because they don't have any money. I mean, us doing economic sanctions on Russia is like us doing economic sanctions on Portugal. I'm not kidding. It's like the same size. Like, like we can really crush them. We own the world economy, or at least we're part owners to the world economy now with China and Germany, Japan, maybe a bit too. Russia is a peewee. We can crush them economically, and we are really hurting them. China's a full player with us in this game. We can't crush them. It's not so much that China will sanction us back and cut us off. It's that we can't cut them off. We need them. We need that. You like your iPhone? You know, like, like, and and everything else, we we are like, it's like we're we're like we're like Siamese twins with China. We can't cut them off; they're too strong. But I think this guy's too naive. I I think he's mm. so naive that he doesn't understand that if he does sanction them, they will cut us off. And I don't think he realizes that he can't do that. I think I think you're you're more right than you know. I think he won't be able. To, he'll say lots of sanctions. He won't be able to institute them because he'll say, "Oh, let's cut them totally off." Let's say that's what he says. In the practical level, when they go to cutting it off, it's like, no, I don't want to cut my own hand off. That's bad. Like, I want to still keep getting these iPhones from China, and I want to still keep having international trade. I don't want, gee, if the U.S. economy goes into full depression mode, I'll get put put out of office. The, the like, advisors will say, you will definitely get put out of office if we go into an international world depression. And that's what will happen if China and the U.S. cut each other off. We can't cut each other off. He can't even, he can't do it. No president can cut China off. No, I don't think he will. I think he'll just put a sanction on China. And then that one sanction, China cuts us off. But that would be them making the same mistake. I don't think they'll do that. I think they'll hurt us. We'll hurt them. We'll poke each other back and forth, and we'll stay tied together. No, they'll poke us hard. They'll figure out where we're soft. We'll look to where it hurts them and not us, and we'll succeed. Oh, you mean and while, th- while we're worried about green and on our phones, they're just getting stronger and smarter mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. else while we're worried about things that don't matter. And we're, we're bankrolling their success right now because it makes our lives more comfortable. We're not doing it because we love them. We're doing it because there's cheap labor there and there's an efficient, advanced country there that can do stuff that we want. And they're saying, wow, you guys are sending us lots of money. Let's take that and build our country. So there's there's a bilateral relationship there that both of us are building off of Partially out of greed, but partially out of just pragmatism. It's just smart to do. And why do you think, why, why not make our own oil? Why, why actually pay Russia, pay our enemies? We are actually. So that's an interesting thing. Right now, we've gone, it's a fascinating subject. I mean, we're wrapping up, and now you're, this could be a whole multiple-hour subject. That's when you come on Tommy's show. Absolutely. It's a whole, like, well, but this, you know, there's other people to bring along on this subject that understand this better. I was just actually talking to somebody whose um, brother was, was quoted in, in, in the Washington Post on this, on this subject of, of natural gas. But the, actually, so we actually, the U.S. turned from a energy 
from severely energy dependent to being a world energy supplier. We actually sell more energy products than we take in. We are concerned about the Arab oil and about energy related to China and gas because of politics now and because of how it affects our prices of our own oil that we produce here. We don't really largely import very much. We export more than we import now. We've changed in the past 10 years. We flipped. But We're then, a net energy exporter now. But then why is gas so high right now? Because it's a free market. So the people that own the businesses in the U.S. can also sell on the global market. So if they can sell for higher on the global market, they'll sell to you for higher. We're not a, if we were a socialist economy, we could just say, hey, you know what, gas, a dollar a gallon, that's what we want, you know, or, or $20 a barrel of oil. But we're a capitalist society, so if they can sell their U.S. oil to the Europeans for $100 a barrel, they don't have to sell to us for anything cheaper than that. That's, wow. the, that's the way capitalism works. Wow, that's huge. So what you're saying is, is that we are making our own yep. oil, we're making our yep. own energy, but we're selling it to other countries because we're getting more money for it from other countries. Meanwhile... The citizen is paying more at the gas pump because we're selling our own gas to our own oil energy to other countries absolutely and wow. whatever is going on in in wow. the rest of the world affects every country it's a global market now why would they do that i guess over money just that's just that that is by definition how international capitalism with low with with low tariffs works the way you can the way you could address this, and we've been moving against this for many decades, the way this could be addressed, and I'm not advocating for it, I'm just calling it out like this is the way it is, you can raise tariffs. So you can say, um, I'm going to tax any oil that goes out so it's cheaper for you to sell here in the US. I can do that, but then other countries can do that to us and then we get their stuff for more money. So we can make it more expensive for other countries to get from us and keep it cheaper here, but they will all retaliate upon us and the idea of the global economic system was that we reduce those trade barriers. The principle was that. Wow. Talk about capitalism. And you never hear that. You'll never hear that on any news station. that are, They're all in cahoots anyway, but you'll never hear that. I've yeah, I mean, that's a heard. fact. It's wow. it, and that's not a secret. It's not a conspiracy. It's just something that's not talked about. Ever by anybody. No, but it's, and that's like, again, that's it's not my opinion. I'm not even, I don't, I, listen, Peter has a degree in economics. I don't, um, but... You know, like I don't have to have an economic degree to know this is a fact. Great. All right, Jeff, amazing interview. Thank you. Thank you so. Oh, thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Peter. This was so much fun. Yeah. Th thanks, Tommy, for the use of the studio, and uh, hopefully, we'll see you back in here at some point. I'd love it. Take care.